everyone! Before we start, I wanted to let you know, if you would like to watch our whole service, head to our website, that's dc2.me, and from the media drop-down, click Sermons. You can watch our whole service there. And now, here's this week's sermon. All right. Hey, good morning, everyone, and for those joining us online, both those online in Colorado and those online around the world, we want to welcome you to Discovery as well. We are a belong before you believe community, which means that we are a church home for people who are followers of Christ. And equally, we're a church home for people who are not followers of Christ. It might be that you're married to a Christian or you have a Christian in your family, or it might be that you're on your own quest. You're trying to make sense of life and meaning. This is a community of faith where we encourage you to bring all of that out into the open. And uh, before we get into the message, normally what happens is uh, I come up or someone a lot like me will come up and and open the Bible for about half an hour, sometimes 35 minutes, and just share what's going on in the Bible. But just three really quick announcements. I know Lene led us through some, but I just want to highlight a few things. First of all, uh, let me talk about uh, our residency program here at Discovery. You know, COVID took a lot from us and made us rearrange a lot of things, but there were several things that strengthened through COVID. And in my opinion, our residency program was one of them. We take typically high school kids, uh, excuse me, typically college kids, they come and live with a family here for a year and they work at the church about 25, 30 hours. They're embedded with a mentor, they take classes here and we put ministry on their shoulders. It's not an experience where they're just learning. We actually expect them to lead. And this year we had our first ever high school uh, resident and that was Olivia Cologne who led worship for us this morning. And today is Olivia's last day. She's been with us all year. She did successfully graduate high school. We, we made a best effort to get her to fail so she'd stick around. And in the fall, she'll be heading to CSU for music therapy to do it, not to receive it. And uh, I'll just say that Olivia, I, she represents all of our residents. They've been phenomenal. So those of you who call Discovery Home, a couple of things. If you see a resident today, please say hi to them. Please thank them. And also, if you run into Olivia today, uh, please do the same as we celebrate uh, her final day with us uh, at the church. Secondly, another thing, COVID definitely put a dent in our unfinished initiative, but it did not knock it over. It made it go longer. We took in a little less money than we'd hoped. Uh, The city shut down all approvals for about nine months or so. But a few weeks ago, thanks to the hard work of Tom Morris and Becky Eads, uh, two staff members here at Discovery, we got approval from the city of Broomfield. So we have some pictures for you. This is the next building, if you remember, that we plan on building. Um, as much as COVID put a dent in Unfinished, we were able to finish phase one of, of the Unfinished campaign, which was fully renovating the barn. A lot of you, while the barn was empty with lockdown, we got to work and we had contractors in here You notice what used to be an outdoor patio is now indoor space. We've expanded the square footage of the barn by a number of square feet. And we've added a lot of seating capacity on this floor and upstairs. Obviously, you can see everything moved around. But also, the big news of getting our next building approved. Those of you who've been around Discovery for a while, you know that's not something we take for granted. Historically, getting a building through the city approval process has been brutal. And this one was the smoothest sailing you could imagine. We went through the land use review. They had nothing but blessing and positivity about it. 
And so now we are looking, uh, obviously with a pastoral transition, we're being careful about the when, but we're moving full speed ahead. We've got some civil engineering work, some parking we hope to put in, and then of course the big nut is going to be digging a big hole and building a big building. And we'll be in touch on what that's going to take and when we want to do that. And finally, uh, a couple of weeks ago, Amy, uh, Amy Hayes got up and gave our announcement. She's the chair of our elders, and she invited the entire church to have breakfast with the elders. And I just wanted to extend that invitation to anybody because there's been so much change. Obviously, with COVID, with unfinished, with the pastor transition, and so the elders are hosting a breakfast in August, just out out front, outside, and you can come before the first service or the second service. Let the elders feed you, and then they'd love to give you updates on all of what's going on, and then there'll be a quick chance for questions as well. So just want to let you know that, and I'd, I'd love for you as we're gearing back as a church to get involved in as much of that as you're able. Uh, we're excited for our church to really gather back together again. All right, well, let's talk about the message. We're in a series called Villains of the Bible, and a couple of weeks ago, I was driving on 136 in my magnificent Swedish wagon, and uh, it's a Saab. I know you were thinking, is it a Volvo? No, it's not a Volvo. It's a Saab. So I was driving in the Swedish wagon, and I and, uh, had to get on the interstate, so I, I turned on 136 down to I-25 north, and that's a, actually a fairly short uh, join lane for the interstate. You know, different entrances have different lengths, and 136 is not the longest. So I'm, I'm enjoying my turbocharged car to get up to speed, and I'm doing about 60 or so, and that's when I noticed there's a semi-trailer really barreling in the lane that I was going to merge into, and we're doing about the same speed, and I have two choices. I can really gun it, get in front of him, and I think inconvenience him, and probably not put him in danger, but definitely make him have to put his brakes on. So instead, I just eased off the accelerator, backed off, and then just let him gently, slowly go by. And then my plan was to sneak behind him and off I go. Sounds normal, right? So this crazy lady behind me, she sees me backing off, so she speeds up. She gets right on my bumper, flashes her lights, and pops the middle finger to me, which I got to admit, I admire the dexterity. One hand on the, one hand on the lights and one on the middle finger. She was working hard, but she is right on my rear end, highly aggressive, and I very, I use a finger, but it's the pointer, not the bird, and I just point to the truck as if, I don't know why I did that, as if she didn't know that giant semi-trailer's there. So then I assume what's going to happen is she, calm will prevail, she'll back off as a normal citizen would, and then we would both merge over to the truck. But no, what she did is the truck, of course, got in front of her before it got in front of me. So she swings over to the truck, speeds up, and blocks me in to where I have to slam on the brakes because I've run out of room. Pretty impressive move. And then as, she, as she's watching me go back, it's just one giant bird. The whole time, like, she's, doing, she's really enjoying putting me in my place. Now, objectively, I understand we all get caught up. Objectively, she is 100% in the wrong. I, I'm just going to say that. And what was interesting, what happened next, is the unbelievable level of rage that took over my body. It was really disturbing. I got flooded with rage because I, I had had an injustice done against me. Granted, a pretty mild one on the global scale of injustice. But I felt like this was an injustice. And then I felt this interesting move next, it's my job to make it right. And listen, I'm not proud of this, I had to stop myself chasing her in my car. Like, what is going on 
Now, can I be honest with you? She was in a Toyota RAV4. I could have taken her in the Swedish wagon. It would have been, it would have been easy. But I literally have to convince myself, no, 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 don't chase her in your car. That's not a good idea. Because what are you going to do when you catch her? Like, what's the, what's the plan? But I was so filled with rage and self-righteousness that all of my thinking had gone. It's very difficult to be merciful to people who cause you harm. This is like the most low-grade sense of injustice and violation you can imagine. And I was driving to the airport, so you can kind of do the math. That's about a 30-minute trip. It took every bit of 20 minutes of praying for me to be uh, emptied of my anger. And, and a lot of that prayer was, Lord, what is going on that I am so filled with rage 15 minutes after the incident happens, I'm still thinking to myself, I wonder if I have enough of her license plate, I can call the police, I can make up a story. Hey, this lady was wildly swerving, I think she was drunk, and I think I saw a gun. Like, I'm telling myself, don't do that, don't do that. What is going on? It's very difficult to be merciful to people who cause you so much harm. Each week, when we open the Bible in this series, we're taking a look at various villains in the Bible, partly for fun, partly just because it's a fun summer series, but more importantly, to be reminded of the mercy of God. You know, even when we look at a villain and some of the terrible things they do in Scripture, we're always interested in looking, what's the redemption story that God is at work? And I'll be honest, I've been excited about this one for a while. When, when we did the villain series, I'm like, I've got to do Jonah. I've got to do Jonah. Now, if you're a follower of Christ, but even if you're not a follower of Christ, if you were born in church and you grew up in Sunday school and the flannel graph and the accordion just have a special place in your heart, or if you don't really know much about the Bible, like if, if, I, if you had a physical Bible now and I would say, turn in your Bibles to Jonah and you'd be like, I don't know, you probably still know something about this guy. You know, it, it's, it's become such a classic story that whether you're a church person or an unchurch person, you know generally that it involves Jonah and a whale. Or uh, depending on who you talk to, uh, there were this, for those of you who aren't followers of Christ, this might sound crazy to you, but there's endless debate in the church. Is it a whale or is it a big fish? So there's all these fights. You can go into blogs and see people get into fights about it. But, but the whole idea of Jonah is he refused to extend mercy to people who had done him harm and his people harm. Jonah 1, verse 1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord, and he headed to Tarshish. He went down to Joppa, where he found a ship bound for that port, and after paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to free, flee from the Lord. All right, we're just going to stop here. So a couple of things we know already. Jonah is a man of God. He, his full-time occupation, he's essentially a pastor. In the Old Testament times, he's known as a prophet. And a prophet had a very simple role. Their job was to listen to the Lord. And generally, their job was to speak truth to powerful people. Get in the king's face, or sometimes the, the, the Israel's face, and tell them to shape up. Most of the time, prophets were in trouble because they were telling difficult things from God to people who weren't living right. That would be your run-of-the-mill prophet. That would be Isaiah. That would be Jeremiah. That would be Ezekiel. Jonah, on the other hand, 
is a prophet. He's a full-time employee of God. It's exactly the opposite. God says, I want you to go and do a missionary trip. I want you to go into enemy territory. Nineveh is part of Assyria. It's modern-day Iraq. In fact, I think we have a map up here for you uh, to show you. And so you can see the first dot where it says Joppa, that's near Jerusalem where Jonah lives. God wants him to make a 550-mile trek northeast to basically modern-day Iraq. And Jonah says, I think I'll do exactly perfectly the opposite. I'm instead going to go 2,500 miles southwest, basically to Spain, to Tarshish, because that is the furthest place in the world that Jonah knows about. Like he didn't know what was beyond Tarshish. So he goes down to Joppe, gets a ticket, and goes to Tarshish. Basically, the bottom line is uh, he's in the boat and he would rather run away from God than obey God. I think some of us have a hearty amen for that. But then what gets interesting is he gets on the boat uh, and, and they set sail and a massive storm comes up on the sea and Jonah goes down into the belly of the boat. Uh, the whole literary nature of this book is Jonah going down, 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 down. He's in Jerusalem. He goes down to Joppa. He goes down to the dock. He goes down to the boat. Then he goes down in the boat. Now you think he's at the worst. He's in the bottom of the boat. There's a raging storm, and the sailors are panicking. They're like, we are going to die if something doesn't happen. I wonder, they think to themselves, if maybe we've gotten stumbled into some accidental curse. Now, in the Old Testament particularly, water is always a symbol for chaos, the sea. So you can see in the Genesis 1, the, the creation narrative, chaos going on there. And so basically the sailors are in chaos. So it's actually quite entertaining that Jonah decides to run away into the water. Like that's, for, for people reading or hearing this story in the Old Testament, they'd be like, oh, Jonah, don't do that. Don't end up in water. Bad things are going to happen to you. Sure enough. The storm blows up. The sailors are like, I think somehow a God is cursing us. So the sailors play a game. And the game is called, I wonder who's cursing us. That's not really the name of the game in the Bible, but that's basically it. And they roll dice in the Bible. They cast lots. They're rolling dice. And the dice points to Jonah. So they wake him up. They, they're like, hey, dude. And here's where it gets really funny. They actually say to him, you can read this in your own Bible. They say, remember when you told us when you bought a ticket that you were running from God? That's how they start the statement. Remember when you bought a ticket and you said, hey, I'm running from God, can you help me? Tell us about this God. And Jonah says to them, oh no, he says, this is the God that created the land and the sea. And they're like, okay, thanks, that's helpful information. Could we sacrifice to this God? Is there something we can do to appease your angry God? Clearly you're the problem. And here's the thing, Jonah says, throw me overboard. Now, you would think that that's Jonah being selfless. No, because Jonah could have simply said, take me back to land. I've been disobeying my God. Just take me back to the shore and I'll, I'll go to Nineveh. No, he says, throw me overboard, which is Jonah's way of saying, I would rather be dead than extend mercy to Nineveh to my enemies. That's the point of him. He wants to die. He, he's thinking, just throw me overboard. And, and here, the sailors are like, oh, no, 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 we don't do that. We have integrity. We are people of character. We don't believe in taking an innocent life. And Jonah has to beg them to throw him overboard. Here is where we start to get this wonderful contrast in Jonah between the so-called man of God, like you would think it's the man of God that does the right thing, 
But in the book of Jonah, it's the man of God that's always doing the wrong thing. And it's all the pagans around the man of God, all of the people that you would think would do the wrong thing. For example, sorry for those of you who served your country in the Navy, but for example, sailors, like, like Jonah, the book of Jonah is trying to say, your run-of-the-mill sailor doesn't really care much about life or the holiness of God. And here we have these sailors uh, more moral and having more integrity than the man of God. So here, our story picks up in verse 13. He's begging them to, to throw him overboard. And verse 13, instead, the men did their best to row back to land, but they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. Then they cried out to the Lord, to Jonah's God, please, Lord, do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man. For you, Lord, have done as you pleased. And then they took Jonah and they threw him overboard and the raging sea grew calm. And at this, the men greatly feared the Lord and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and they made vows to him. One of the jobs of a prophet is to convert people to the Lord and Jonah is doing it in spite of himself. It's so funny. As they throw him over, they're like, we are now Yahwists. And they make a sacrifice and they make a vow and they now are followers. We're probably going to run into these people in heaven one day. Now the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. This is the part, this is the most famous part of Jonah, Jonah and the whale, Jonah and the fish. Uh, at, at this point, I do need to point out that Jonah is a parody. It's, it's a satire. Uh, those of you who love Mad Magazine, that's Jonah. And I, I also want to say, particularly for those of you who are not churched people, uh, I think you, and, and maybe some of you who are followers of Christ, you may see this part of the story where it says, now the Lord provided a huge fish and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. And you might be saying, how does that work exactly? How does he breathe? Uh, is, that, is this true, right? So I'd just like to say a couple of things. At Discovery, there's all kinds of churches. We are a church that holds the highest view of Scripture. We believe the Bible is the inspired Word of God. It is God-breathed. What that means is that human beings wrote it, but they wrote it under the power of God's Spirit, directing them what to write. And then God, through the early church, is quite remarkable, actually compiled the stories and the books that God wanted for people to be able to read for thousands of years. It is inspired. In other words, we do not treat the Bible like any other book. We don't get up here and, you know, open Shakespeare and learn about our life from Shakespeare, although you could, because we believe the Bible is more than just a book. It's actually God's um, way. It's God's guidance. And so that means it has authority over our lives in this church. The reason I say that is because people get very tripped up about Jonah and some other stories. And it doesn't have to be a true story for it to be the Word of God. What, by true, what I mean is this could be a fiction and this could be a literal story. It, it's not, that question is not interesting to the author of Jonah. And it, therefore, it's not interesting to us as a church. Is this a parody that is actually a make-believe with truth in it? Like many great fictions? Those of you who have not been following the news, Ted Lasso season two just came out. It's a fiction with incredible truth about life. Uh, is that what this is? Or is this actually 
a literal factual thing that actually happened where miraculously Jonah was swallowed by a fish and was protected in his belly for three days. That's also a possibility. I'm not interested in making a case for one or the other. It's whatever God and the author had in mind. And we're not sure today, a few thousand years removed, we're not sure. Uh, and so I just want to relieve those of you, particularly those of you who are skeptical about Christians and you're like, look, these people are idiots. Like they believe in a literal seven-day creation when the sun was created on day four? How do you have a day before the sun? Or they say, they believe that a guy was swallowed by a fish and he lives for three days in a watery environment? It's entirely possible that actually happened. It's equally possible that God put this story in for us to take the point from it. Uh, what I would say, I'd, I would like to push on those of you who are, who are not church, those of you who don't consider yourselves followers of Christ, we in the church, we place our hope in what the Scriptures say to be true, I would ask, well, what do you count on? Rather than dismissing and maybe even mocking what you think you understand about the Bible, what bedrock do you stand on for your standards, for your moral compass, for your sense of right and wrong? Because for us, we depend on Jesus Christ, and we depend on the Word of God in the Scripture. And I don't want to give the impression that it's simple, the Bible can definitely complicate matters. It's very messy. It sometimes can contrast opinions right there in Scripture. But one of the ways we respect the authority of the Scripture is to notice the literary structure, and I would not be doing my job if I did not point out that this is intentionally a parody, a satire. All right. So, the author is mocking Jonah, and by proxy, the author is going to be mocking us by the end of the story, just to warn you. So, uh, Jonah 2.10, and the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. And then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to that great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. And Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord. God got through to him. And Jonah went to Nineveh, and now Nineveh was a very large city, and it took three days to go through it. And Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. This is Jonah's sermon. It's in the original language, it's five words long. Some of you right now, you're like, I wish Jonah was our preacher. Five word sermon. 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. We're reading from the New International Version. And I got to say, with respect to the people that translated it, they punted on this one. They, they chickened out. Because in the Hebrew, it's 40 more days and Nineveh will turn. And the Hebrew word turn is intentionally obscure enough to where you don't know if it means be overthrown or repent. It's an intentionally obscure, it's a very unusual word to choose when, when the author's choosing the words. It's, it's, an unu it's like, why did he choose this word? He's intentionally making it ambiguous. So through Jonah's lips, Jonah means you're all going to burn. Now, I want you to notice this sermon. It's not hard to notice. It's five words long. Forty more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. That's it. There's no mention of God. God is nowhere to be found in this sermon. That's how you know it's a bad sermon. There's no hope. 
That's how you know it's a bad sermon. There's no redemption. There's no mercy. It's just a straight declaration of justice. It reminds me exactly of how I was feeling as I was trying to merge on an interstate in Davagnen, which is Swedish for the wagon. That's how I was feeling. Do you need something? Sorry, Eli. Sure, yeah. Uh, where is it? And there's no hope, there's no God, uh, and here's the funny thing, in verse 5, the Ninevites believed God, a fast was proclaimed, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, sat down in dust. Uh, for those who are unfamiliar, sackcloth and dust is the Old Testament sign that you're really, really, really sorry, that you're genuinely, deeply remorseful for what you did. It's not one of those modern apologies where you get your lawyer and your public relations and you say, I'm sorry that you felt hurt. No, this was an actual cut-to-the-heart, genuine repentance, sackcloth and ashes. Then the king issues a proclamation in Nineveh. By decree of the king and his nobles, do not let people or animals, herds or flocks, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink. So the king says, every human is going to fast and every animal. And the cows are like, what? Like, do we get a say in this? No, the cows are fasting. Verse 8, let the people and the animals be covered with sackcloth. sackcloth. The cows are like, look, it's summer, I don't need a winter coat. And the king's like, nope, the cows are repenting. It's a parody. Everybody around the man of God is more righteous than the man of God, even the dumb cows. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with his compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish when God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and he did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. Then we move into chapter 4. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong. And he became angry. And he prayed to the Lord. How's this for a prayer? Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That's why I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you're a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take my life. It's better for me to die than to live. How self-righteous do you have to be when you would rather be dead than see the people you hate get mercy? The Lord replied, is it right for you to be angry? <laughs> and there's no answer. Jonah is so full of rage and self-righteousness, he does not even answer God's question. Instead, he walks out into the field. Jonah had gone out and sat down at a place east of the city, and there he made himself a shelter, and he sat in its shade, and he waited to see what would happen to the city. He was still hoping God was going to smite the Ninevites. And then the Lord God provided a leafy plant, and he made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the plant. And yes, that is meant to be funny. 
But at the dawn of the next day, God provided a worm which chewed the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint and he wanted to die. And he said, it would be better for me to die than to live. And then God a second time asked the same question he asked before, is it right for you to be angry about that plant? It is, he said. I'm so angry, I wish I was dead. The Lord said, you've been concerned about this plant, though you did not tend it or make it grow, it sprang up overnight and it died overnight. Should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left and also many animals? And that's the end of the book. That's it. That's all you get. You turn the page, it's the next story. You're like, wait, what? Wait. Now, there are some books in the Bible where there's a lot of debate over whether we lost the ending. The book of Mark, for example. You read the book of Mark and Mark just seems to end it. And you're like, there's got to be more. And there's all this debate about it. No one questions Jonah. Everybody says, nope, that's how it ends. It ends with Nineveh repenting, Jonah stuck on a hillside trying to find shade under a worm-eaten plant, grumpy, and that's because the author is placing the next move into the reader's hand or the hearer's hand. It's now our job to finish the story. It's a genius way of writing. It's kind of like setting you up for the climax, and then it just ends there, and now we have to take it from here. So let's do that real quick as we wrap up, just a few things in the last few minutes. First of all, I believe the worm is as grumpy as Jonah, because in the, the history of this story, he gets no love at all, right? Like right now, there's a worm and a whale in heaven. Let's just say it's a whale to get it over with. And the worm's like, how is it that you got so famous when I did all the heavy lifting here? Like definitely, God used the worm as much as the whale to get Jonah's attention. Uh, something for us to take away for ourselves. Uh, this is just a lightweight hit. Jonah clung to his petty preference over God's vast and extensive mercy and grace. Jonah clung to his petty preferences over God's vast and extensive mercy and grace. I remember working at a church where we were involved in a really uh, broad homeless ministry. We would go downtown, we'd pick up some homeless, mostly men, and we'd bring them to our church, they'd go through showers, we'd give them fresh clothes, we'd sit down, have breakfast together, we'd study the Bible together, then we'd go to church together, and many of them volunteered in the church. And I remember the facilities guy, who's a good human being, but had a discrimination issue. And he pulled me aside during the week, because we had about 60 homeless guys that would come and worship with us, it was really something. He pulled me aside during the week and he said, Steve, I need you to tell your homeless guys to stop putting their feet on my walls. I don't know what you mean. And he said, when, I, when I'm walking around the, the walls, I notice these guys, they're leaning against the wall, they're putting their feet, and they're making the wall dirty, and it's making my job harder. And I very gently said to him, have you had this conversation with non-homeless people? Uh, is it exclusive habit of homeless people to only lean against a wall and stick their foot? Petty preferences over God's vast and extensive mercy and grace. This is the challenge, or one of the challenges of every church. 
We get used to what we get used to. We like what we like, and there's nothing wrong with that. Your music preference, your preaching preference, uh, cliche in church is the color of the carpet. It's fine to have preferences, but don't, don't, don't. Don't let us ever as a church elevate our petty preferences over and against the vast and extensive mercy and grace. That's what church is all about. When you stand between God's mercy and people who need it, bad things might happen to you. I, I can't say they will. This is such an iconic, unique story. I can't make a blanket statement, but they might. Woe to those who represent God and stand in the way of people encountering God. Woe to those people. When you look through Scripture, there are plenty of people like Jonah, uh, the religious leaders in Jesus' time, uh, over and over again, you see Jesus aggressively knocking down barriers so that human beings in need of mercy can experience mercy. Another thing which is kind of a related aside that I've been wrestling with for a couple of years now, and I think I'm ready to start talking about it, I think the gospel works better when it's redemptive than when it's preventative. I know this feels like a, a left field, and it kind of is, from this story, but when I was reading Jonah, I was thinking about this. I think what happens is when we've been in the church so long, we forget that we were redeemed, and we start trying to treat the gospel like it's a prevent you from getting into trouble way of living. I know a lot of parents feel so much pressure to disciple your kids in such a way that they will never get into trouble, and when they get into trouble, you say, what did I do wrong in the discipleship? And I would just say to you as a pastor, maybe you did something wrong, but it's entirely possible you did nothing wrong. That in the Scripture, the gospel is more about redemption than prevention. Now, if you want to use the gospel to prevent, you can try that. And I'm not saying it's not preventative. Double negative, sorry. I'm not saying it's not preventative. I'm just saying it's primarily uh, redemptive. It's not about stopping you from hitting walls, getting into secret addictions, standing up straight, always putting your hand up the right time and never swallowing your gum because it'll fester in your stomach for seven years and you'll be a bad Christian. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying when you have shot yourself up with heroin, when your kid is in jail, when you have blown the grace of God again and again and again, when you are so bad that you've become a Ninevite, who took Israelites, killed them, shrunk their skulls, and wore them around their necks as bragging rights. That's why Jonah hated the Ninevites, because the Ninevites had killed some of his people and tortured them and then bragged about it. And it felt like a giant middle finger to Jonah. He's like, not on my watch. You're not getting any mercy. You don't deserve any mercy at all. And I'm going to go out of my way to make sure you don't get any mercy. And even when I obey God after I get swallowed by this fish, I'm going to give the least possible sermon I can, the lowest possible form of obedience. The gospel is redemptive. And I wish to say to those of you who feel like you've made a mess of your life, not so bad. Not so bad. God's not blushing at whatever you've done, that's for sure. God is ready to take you back. The, the Ninevites deserved exactly zero measures of mercy, but God does not understand. God has a mercy measuring stick, and the lowest number is right about six billion. 
That's where it starts, and then it goes up from there. So you, it's going to take a long time for you to run out of God's mercy, and this was fundamentally Jonah's problem, is his mercy stick started at zero. No mercy, and then if you really do it right, maybe some mercy. And God's like, I don't even know what that stick looks like. Let me show you my mercy stick. And so I, I wish to have a word to those in the church, but also those of you that you see the church as judgmental. Like, I know that God's reputation in our culture today is that God is disappointed with us and He's angry at us. And it's simply not true. Unfortunately, there are too many Jonas in our society perpetuating that myth. But those of you who are not followers of Christ, not so fast. This cancel culture thing going on nowadays is crazy. And why is it crazy? Because there's no mercy. There's no redemption. I don't care if you're a follower of Christ, you believe in the forgiveness of God, or if you consider yourself an atheist. The whole idea that no matter what somebody does, you can simply cancel them and there's no hope for that person, there's no opportunity for them to repent, there's no redemption. Our culture is in dire need of God's people who dispense mercy and grace rather than judgment. And listen, Discovery Church, if we get this wrong, we get the whole gospel wrong. This is the whole ballgame for us, dispensing mercy and grace rather than judgment. And the reason is just as simple as can be. I'm going to invite Olivia and the team to come up and prepare to lead us in worship because the next songs we're singing are declaring the goodness and the grace of God. The idea of the church is that God is so merciful to the church that it flows out from us and extends mercy to others. The idea of the church is that mercy triumphs over judgment. So just as we wrap up, I just want to ask you, who are you angry at? Who has done you wrong that you would celebrate if they got in trouble? Uh, who have you had an anger fantasy about chasing them down the interstate so that they can get in trouble somehow? Like, who has God put in your life that is really hard to forgive? Now, I want to be careful here because we move into stories of abuse where, and, and narcissism where boundaries are healthy. I, I just want to say you can forgive somebody and still have a strong boundary to protect yourself from their terrible behavior. But moving into judgment, that's God's job. And God did all the judging there is to do when He died on the cross for us. God judged not so much us, but our sin on the cross. The last thing on Jesus' mind when He was on the cross was mercy. It was the last thing on His mind. And the way you know that is because the, the thief who was crucified with Him called out and asked Jesus to keep Him in mind. And Jesus extended mercy freely. This is why we sing. This is why we worship. And this is what we celebrate when we receive communion. So I'm going to invite us, those who are able in the room, to stand. And let's pray and then let's sing as we prepare our hearts for communion. Father, thank you for mercy that triumphs over judgment. Thank you for a gospel that is more redemptive than preventative. Thank you that no matter how far gone we are, we can always turn back to you, that there's always hope. Your mercy stick, fresh mercies every morning. Every morning we wake up to a fresh stack of mercies.
Lord, would you help us as a church to be as merciful to others as you are to us? Would you always keep front and center in our minds your overflow of mercy so that we can be gracious and compassionate even to those who do us harm and mean harm to us? I pray in Jesus' name.